Amen, amen. What a joy it is to share God's word with you this morning. Thank you for joining with us on campus and those for joining with us online as well as we worship the Lord through reading and responding to his word. Before we open up God's word this morning, let us uh, pray together. Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity to come under your goodness. Uh, Lord, it's because of your goodness that you are committed to your holy name. And because you are committed to your holy name, you are committed to uh, your people. And Lord, we thank you that even in the midst of our unfaithfulness, uh, you are forever, forever uh, faithful. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you will uh, choose to meet us in any place we are. Uh, And Lord, through your goodness, not only will you meet us there, but in your grace and your mercy, Lord, you will bring us out of that place. Uh, Lord, for your glory and our good. And so, Lord, we celebrate you this morning. We praise you. And as we open up your word, we ask that you reveal through your spirit the truth that we need to hear this morning and the truth that we need to be walking in as followers of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 1 through 5 this morning. If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. I would encourage you to take that Bible and open open up to page 1078. 1078. We have been walking through a sermon series entitled The Gospel and Fellowship. The Gospel and Fellowship. This is our fifth message in that particular teaching series. It'll be our last message in that teaching series. Uh, We started uh, the bulk of that teaching series walking through the book of Philemon. And what an amazing uh, picture of of what gospel community looks like. The very fact that even in uh, the midst of brothers and sisters in Christ, even in that midst of that family, uh, we we not only uh, sin against others, but we also uh, receive the wounds of somebody else's sin against us, right? And so the question is, how, how do we respond when that happens within the community of faith? And so we've been walking through uh, different aspects of what, uh, how do we, uh, it's not that we're regaining unity, because God has sealed that unity for us, but how do we live in that unity? How do we bring about fellowship and forgiveness and all those different things that relate to the community of faith? And this is why it's important. We have to recognize in anything that God desires for us, there is one who is against those things, right? In fact, in John 10, 10, the scripture says what? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So it's not just eternal life, but how do we live in the blessings of God right now in the midst of the community of faith? And so we have to recognize that anytime we're talking about a movement of the Lord, a movement of the gospel in us and through us, we're going to have an adversary. We're going to have an enemy. And so we have to recognize that. Uh, It drives us to the truth of the gospel, living in the spirit of God, and how do we apply those truths in the midst of our relationships, even when there's relational hurt, even when there's brokenness, because there's not a single person that I know of that is a follower of Christ and has experienced relation, not experienced relational hurt. It's just something that happens. We live in a fallen world. We're fallen people, right? So we're, we're going we're gonna to do things wrong, right? So the question is, how do we, what do we do? What is the process? And so we started talking about forgiveness. And that was really that first initial step. And, and forgiveness really uh, is not ultimately about you and the other person. It's ultimately about you and the Lord, right? And that is so, so important. Forgiveness means to fully release somebody, to pardon them, to give up a debt that is owed to you, to no longer hold a grudge, to seek revenge, or to pay them back for the wrong that they've committed to you. And, and what we find in Scripture is forgiveness is not optional, right? That is a command that God has given to us. 
to be a forgiving people. And, and how is that even possible? One, we have to understand forgiveness begins with God, right? God has forgiven us an ultimate debt, right? Uh, he has paid that debt in full at the, at, the, at the work of Christ on the cross, right? It is finished, right? And so it, it's because that we stand forgiven forever, past, present, future sin. All those sins have been forgiven at the cross, and it's based on that standing that we have in the Lord that we're able to forgive those who have hurt or wronged us. We also understand that uh, it's, it's hard, Forgiveness is hard. Why? Because anytime we've been wronged by somebody, and the severity of that wrong uh, plays a factor as well, is uh, we want justice, right? We want to right all wrongs. And, and, and the reason why that's hard is because we realize that forgiveness is an act of faith. We're trusting in the goodness of God. We're trusting that God will do what's ultimately right and just. And justice isn't just about uh, punishment. Justice is about love as right as well. And typically when we think of justice, we only think of consequence. We only think of punishment. But when you think about the full justice of God being displayed on the cross, what do we see? We see judgment towards sin, but we see love towards the sinner, right? So that's important. So forgiveness really doesn't have anything to do with the other person, right? That is ultimately between you and God first. And it's out of that then you can move to that next step, and that is reconciliation. Reconciliation. Reconciliation is the process of removing the obstacles that got in the way of that relationship, and the obstacles are a result of sin. Anytime sin enters into a relationship, guess what? There's an obstacle there, and reconciliation is the process in which those, those obstacles are removed. And re- reconciliation, unlike forgiveness, requires both parties, right? Both parties have to be willing to commit to the process of reconciliation, and it certainly does uh, include forgiveness. We need to receive and give forgiveness in the midst of that uh, brokenness, right? But just like forgiveness, reconciliation begins with God. The ultimate obstacle between us and God, our sin, right, has been removed because of the cross. He reconciled us uh, to the Father. Uh, it's a movement of love. Somebody has to make the first move, right? We, we can't both sit like this, I mean, you think about our own relationship, specifically in a marriage as as an example. There's been wrong, there's been an obstacle there, and we can sit like this for years, right? And say that we're married functionally, but not living in the blessing of what it means to be married, right? And and the same thing with our friendships. You're wronged by somebody, or or you wrong somebody, and and everybody's waiting for somebody to make the first move, right? And what we find in the gospel is what Jesus takes the initiative, right? And what an amazing picture of the gospel and how we can reflect that in our relationships with one another. It's going to require honesty. Uh, For the one that's been hurt, man, first and foremost, go to the Lord. Be honest with your emotions. Be honest with that hurt. Go before the Lord and say, this is how this person has hurt me. The scripture calls us to, to cast all our anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for us. And it's as we do that, we're, again, we're trusting in the goodness of God, the protection of God, the provision of God, so that when we go to the other person, we're not unleashing all that emotional baggage, all that emotional unchecked emotions on that person. We, we are girding all that stuff through the work of God's grace in our life. So it does require honesty, and, and the other person, the one that has wronged you, or if you're the one that's wronged somebody else, you got to be honest. you got to call it what it is, right? I, I've sinned against you. And just like we learned from David, first and foremost, we sinned against the Lord, right? And then it's out of that that we recognize that we sinned against our brother and sister in Christ. And it's require, it requires a desire for change. In order to reconcile something, there has to be a, a desire for change. In other words, there has to be repentance. You can't keep doing what you're doing, right? As simple as I can say it. If there is no repentance, 
you cannot reconcile the relationship, right? That is so important, so, so important. So it's possible to forgive somebody or receive forgiveness from somebody, but reconciliation doesn't happen, right? So that's important to recognize. And it's out of that that we're gonna begin to talk about this morning, restoration, restoration. Uh, Restoration is the process of how God heals, mends, and returns something back to its intended purpose and design. It's the lifelong process of rebuilding, reestablishing, reviving, or making something new again. Oftentimes, what you'll find is restoration, if the process of restoration is done to the extent that God desires for us, guess what? Your relationship with that individual now can be better than it ever has been even in the midst of the past relational hurt. It's a long time and long-term commitment to live a changed life. And that process of restoration, just like reconciliation, takes a commitment by both individuals or both parties. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look through uh, Galatians chapter 6, specifically verses 1 through 5, because Paul gives the churches in Galatia a picture of what living in gospel community looks like, specifically when sin enters into that gospel community. And it's through this passage that we're going to pull out uh, several components of restoration. And I hope it'll minister to you and obviously to myself as we uh, live life together as brothers and sisters in Christ. So the scripture uh, reading in its entirety, verses 1 through 5, Uh, Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will not be in himself alone, but in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own Load. And so it's from this passage that we're going to, again, unpack several different components of restoration. The first one is this. Restoration can't overlook sin. Can't, can't overlook sin. So we're going to see some continuing things that happen. Like, just like in reconciliation, you can't overlook the sin. Very much so in restoration. If you seek to restore a relationship that has been hurt or impacted by sin, sin must be addressed, right? That's important. But, but notice uh, the reason. One of the reasons why that sin needs to be addressed is beautiful. In verse 1, the first part, Paul says what? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, that word brothers is so important. Remember, it brings us back to that first study that we had in Philemon, that we are a family. Because of the work of Christ in us, we are a family. We are part of God's family. We have been adopted into his family as brothers and sisters in Christ, sons and daughters of the king. So the church is our spiritual family. And that matters because when sin occurs, guess what? Sin must be addressed. Why? Because we are part of God's family. We have a responsibility to one another. It reminds me of something that happens in Genesis 4. In Genesis 4, uh, Cain killed his brother Abel, right? First murder occurs in that particular uh, passage. And in Genesis 4, 9, the scripture says this, Then the Lord said to Cain, so Lord, the Lord speaks to Cain. He says, Where is Abel your brother? And what does Cain say? Cain says, I do not know... Am I my brother's keeper? In other words, Abel's not my problem. That's what he's saying. With that one question, guess what? God exposes the heart of Cain. Not only are you responsible for your brother's life, you're also responsible for your brother's death. The point is, we are our brothers and sisters' keeper. This means we are to guard, watch over, and care for one another. That's what it means to be a part of a family especially the family of God, that we are to guard, we are to protect, right? We're supposed to be on guard. In our spiritual family, we have to address sin, and that's part of being on guard. What does he say? If anyone, 
Doesn't matter who it is. If anyone is caught in any transgression, so it's not just limited to a few things, but anyone, any transgression, and that, that phrase there, caught in transgression, is important because it could either mean that somebody was over time overtaken by a sin, right? Uh, again, they're, they're drifting, and, and we don't drift anywhere worth going, right? Or uh, the person is caught in the act of sinning, right? So in the midst of that sin, reminds me of what happens in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, uh, the woman that was caught in adultery was bought, brought before Jesus. And, and I love how Jesus encounters that event, he doesn't just address her sin, but he addresses the people's sin that exposed that sin, right? Jesus is masterful exposing sin, addressing sin. Look at the scripture in John 8, verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees, so these are the religious leaders of the day, right? Those are the people that, uh, that people would go to to seek advice based on specifically Old Testament, how that applies, all those different things. So these are the religious leaders, the moral people of the day. Uh, and these religious leaders brought a woman who had been caught uh, in the act of adultery and placing her in the midst. So it's interesting that they don't bring the man, right? They don't bring him. They just bring her. And where did they put her? They put her in the midst of uh, the crowd. Uh, her sin is being broadcasted for all to see. So there she's possibly still barely clothed, weeping, embarrassed, humiliated, and ashamed, right? Because she's caught in the act, right? In the midst of those things happening. And they said to him, speaking to Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Now this is their heart. This is their motive. What is that motive? Verse six, this they said to test him, to test Jesus, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So they really weren't about seeking the goodness of this woman, they were out to get who? They were out to get Jesus. And I love what Jesus does. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he, Jesus, bent down and wrote on the ground. I would love to know exactly what he wrote on the ground, right? Verse nine, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So they begin to drop the stones, and they begin to walk away. In verse 10, I love it. Jesus stood up and said to her, the one that was being humiliated, right, and embarrassed, the one who was dragged out in front of the crowd, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So Jesus identifies the sin of all the people that are there, right? Not just, not just the woman, but the religious leaders as well, right? And to the woman, what does he give her? In the midst of addressing the sin, he gives her grace and truth. You see, Jesus isn't there to destroy her, but he desires to restore her, right? And this is what we need when we are caught in our sin. We need brothers and sisters in Christ to be our keeper, to hold us accountable for what we have done, and to point us back to the one who gives us grace and truth. Because of our sin, our fellowship with the Lord has been broken. Our fellowship with one another has been broken. And what do we need to do? We need to address that sin so that fellowship can be restored, not just between one and another, but ultimately between us and the Lord. When John writes about this in 1 John, verse 1, uh, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says, if we say we have no sin. In other words, that's what we can say. We can walk around in life as Christians and say, I don't have any sin. So we can say that. And he says, if that's where we are, if we overlook our sin, 
What do we do? We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, this phrase, the truth is not in us, means that the light of the gospel is being shut out of us. Why? Because we're not being honest about what's truly happening, right? And the sin isn't just something that we behaviorally do. Sin can be something that we think, right? In fact, sometimes our greater sin is what's happening in the mind and that's what's happening in our actions, right? Ultimately, it'll get there. However, verse 9, I love it, if we confess our sins, and that the word confess there is, is in the, uh, an ongoing tense, right? If we keep on confessing our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. In other words, he's reminding us that the punishment of that sin has gone to Jesus, right? Again, we're talking about fellowship here. So John is writing to the church. So he's not talking about uh, if you don't confess your sin, every time you do it, you're going to lose your salvation. That's not what he's talking about. What he is talking about is when sin enters into the equation, guess what? Fellowship is broken. And how does that fellowship get restored? What's one of the steps? you got to confess it, right? What does he say? And, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as we confess our sin before the Lord, as we agree with him about what our sin is, right? Guess what? He purifies us. He removes the guilt and shame of our sins. And it's during that process of restoration that we recognize that we can't just sweep our sin under the carpet, Right? Any of you grow, grow up in a house like that? When, when wrong happens, you, you don't really address it. You just sweep it under the carpet. Tomorrow's a new day. Guess what? At some point, the carpet's going to be lifted back, and you're going to have all that stuff sitting there, right? All that stuff is sitting there. Listen, that's why it's so important to address sin within the body of Christ. Listen, we can't just hope that things go away. Now, we don't address all sin in the same manner, the same um, you know, force, if you will. So there are aspects of sin where the confrontation may be a little bit different, right? But we still have to address it. Why? Because I think there are wounds that happen because of other people's sin in your life, and because it hasn't been addressed, it's impacting your relationships with other people, right? The hurt that you've been holding on to for years, it needs to be addressed, right? Now, maybe that person is, is dead and gone, right? That's why you go before the Lord, right? You go before the Lord with that hurt, and that's so important. So restoration can't overlook sin. Uh, second thing we learn is restoration requires the work of the Spirit. Requires the work of the Spirit. When relationships are broken because of sin, it will take the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, to restore it, right? Uh, Paul says, when anyone is caught in sin, listen to what he says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So we have the Spirit's work in both places, right? Two times in this one verse. We are called to restore our brothers and sisters in Christ, Right? The word restore there uh, means to put something back together or to repair something. Right? And, and it comes in two fashions. One, it means to reset a broken bone. You ever had that happen before? That's quite painful. Or to mend a broken net. And that's what happens in Mark chapter 1, where they're mending their nets. And so this, this process of restoration can be both painful and take a lot of time. Right? You can't just mend a net really quickly. It takes time to do it, right? And so when we're talking about this idea of restoration, again, that's in the active tense. So keep on restoring your brother and sister in Christ. And when Paul speaks of someone spiritual, guess who he's talking about? He's talking to all brothers and sisters in Christ who are walking with the Spirit. That's what Paul has already said in the previous chapter. He said those who walk by the Spirit, those who are being led by the Spirit, those who are keeping in step with the Spirit, right? And so this is a spiritual act of work, right? We can't do it in our own strength. When our brothers and sisters commit sin, the Spirit leads us to come alongside them, to meet them where they are, and begin prying open the traps of sin that entrap them in order so that they can live free again in 
the Lord. You see, restoration requires a careful discernment and willingness to be patient and self-controlled. It's a process. And it's a process that requires us to be completely dependent on the Lord and not ourselves, right? We tend to get in the way. Have you recognized that in your own relationships? When it's left to ourselves, we get in the way all the time. And what does the Spirit of God do uh, in us and through us? What are the characteristics of Christ that come throughout this process of restoration? Well, in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, the Scripture talks about the characteristics of Christ in us, about the Spirit. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience. And I love the word patience here because it's not just patience just sitting in traffic, right? It's patience dealing with hard people, hard situations. That's a different level, right? People that you see all the time, right? Uh, Kindness, it's what gives way to empathy and sympathy and compassion. This idea of goodness. Goodness seeks the best and endures the worst, right? And that's what happens in the midst of restoration. Uh, Faithfulness, in other words, we're trusting the Lord. We're trusting in the process that God has laid before us. One of gentleness, that's humility and self-control. So in the process of restoration, we're not driven by impulses, right? These are all acts, characteristics of the Spirit of God. Do you understand and see why we need the work of the Spirit in the midst of the process of restoration? If we only had the desires of the flesh to work on, right? If that's the only thing that we had to leverage in the midst of restoring a relationship that had been broken because of someone's hurt towards us, we would never, ever seek restoration. We would always want to hold that thing over them, right? We would always want the control. We would always want to have the upper hand. But restoration through the Spirit does something totally different. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us that we can confront the sin of another and pursue their restoration and our restoration at the same time. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, Jesus gives us a way of confronting uh, sin that glorifies God and does good for our brother or sister in Christ. In Matthew 18, 15, that first process there, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The word gain there talks about restoring, right? So you're, you're going to that individual specifically, and you're doing it with a heart of uh, tremendous humility before them. That's how you're confronting the sin. You're confronting the sin with the hopes of what? restoration. Now, if that doesn't work, then the scripture goes on and talks about the two other parts of that process. When James writes about confronting sin within the body of Christ, he says this in James chapter 5. He said, my brothers, again, there's that language, that family language, my brothers. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. Now, understand what's fascinating about just that one verse. Uh, The book of James includes like 180 commands, right? There are a lot of commands, right? But the commands are not given to us so that we can somehow reach a state of perfection because it's not going to happen. In other words, the commands are given to us so that we can rely on God's grace and how to live out the Christian life, right? So when we get to the end of the book of James and we read that verse in verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, we learn two things. One, all of us have a potential to wander from the truth, right? Every single one of us. Second thing, all of us are responsible. All of us are responsible to help that brother or sister to come back to the Lord. And it's based on that that he says in verse 20, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save, the word save there is the word restore, restore his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so what's at stake? 
Why is it so important to intervene in our brothers and sisters' life when they are wandering from the truth? Scripture says life and death, right? Now we have to understand what Paul is addressing here with life and death. It's possible, we see it in Scripture, where somebody gets away from the Lord, somebody that's a brother or sister in Christ, and what does God do? God chooses to take them home early, right? Uh, But I think also what happens in life is when we're uh, living outside of the boundaries that God has put before us, there's a spiritual deadness to us, right? That we're, we're not in tune with the Spirit's work in our lives and the lives of others. And so that wandering believer, the, the reason why that's important is we want to restore that person through the Spirit so that what? They will be alive again with the spiritual things of life. And that spiritual life overflows in the relationships that they have. That's what we want. We desire that to be a work of God so that they will have an, a positive impact not only in our relationship with them, but ultimately about the kingdom of God. And the covering that we need is found in the grace of the gospel. We need brothers and sisters in Christ who are willing to dig a trough time and time again back to the cross so that we can see our need for grace and who we are in Christ because of his grace. When we run away from the truth of the gospel, either in lifestyle practice, belief, or in relationship, we fail to see ourselves the way God sees us and we fail to live the way God has empowered us to live through his spirit. So the process of restoration gives us an opportunity to return to the covering we have in Christ, his grace and his truth. So that is a process that we go on. So it's a work of the spirit. We also see that restoration helps in humility. So there's a helping aspect, but it's in humility. Uh, In other words, we have to be careful in the midst of that restoration process. Uh, The scripture says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, now, why do we need to be careful? What's the temptation that Paul is, is addressing here? Well, it's possible that the temptation that uh, Paul is addressing is we'll be tempted to do the very same sin that that person has done, right? So that's possible. Uh, but I also think, because on the whole totality of the book of Galatians, I think Paul is addressing another sin, and that's the sin that we will become uh, prideful. prideful. It's the attitude of self-righteousness, right? And we all have it to some degree. Let's be honest. Look in the mirror. You're going to see it, Right? There's something inside of us that defaults to, I'm better than you. I'm better than them. I would never do that, right? And, and when someone sins against us, that's typically one of the things that comes to our mind, comes to our heart. Sometimes when we see a brother or sister in Christ sin, we think we are better than them. And Jesus addresses this self-righteous pride in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 1. It says, judge not that you uh, be not judged. Now, uh, when Jesus says, judge not uh, that you be not judged, uh, People say that all the time, but they're misquoting what Jesus is trying to say. Jesus isn't telling us not to judge, right? We make judgments all the time. Every day you're making judgments, right? I mean, this morning, do I wear long sleeves, short sleeves? Do I bring a jacket, right? And when we think about people's lives, do, do I feel comfortable around that individual? Do I want to have my kids around that individual? Do I, what guardrails do I need to put, right? So we're making judgments all the time. What is Jesus really saying here? Jesus refers to us not judging too critically, harshly, being a fault finder, judging with impure motives, and most importantly, making judgments before we first examine ourselves. And that's the context, because he says in verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So in other words, we need to be aware of self-righteousness. Be careful. Examine ourselves before the Lord first. Rule out pride in the process of restoration by being what? By being humble. Again, the Christian life is about dependency on the Lord, dependency on the Spirit, not dependency on ourselves. Paul says in Galatians 5, 25 and 26, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Uh, Let us not become conceited. In other words, it's not about seeking our glory, right, but upholding the glory of the Lord, provoking one another, envying one another. So Paul is making a point that we too are sinners, right? 
we too are sinners and have the capacity to do what they did even more, right? That's what the scripture is teaching us. We are not immune to committing the works of the flesh, right? That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. And in humility, we absorb the words that were given to James in James chapter four, verse seven. We are to submit ourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Again, Satan is attacking, right? He's attacking every brother in Christ, every sister in Christ. And you gotta believe again, that when you are trying to walk through the process of restoration, Satan is not sitting back and saying, hey, you're doing great, right? He's not doing that at all. He is going to attack relentlessly. And so that's why it's important that how we resist him is by what? Turning to the Lord. When Jesus resisted Satan, guess what? Satan fled. And the same power that Jesus possesses is the same power that, give, that is given to us in Christ Jesus through his spirit. That, that power lives in us. And as we leverage everything in submission to the Lord, guess what? Satan will flee. Doesn't mean he won't attack. He's going to attack, but he will he will flee. So have a humble evaluation. That's why Paul says in Galatians 6, 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Again, we're not better than anyone else, right? There's no hierarchy within the Christian faith, right? There's no first-class citizen, second-class citizen. That doesn't work in the family of God. We are just in need of God's grace as the one who has sinned against us, right? Do you believe that today? I mean, do you, I mean, with all your hurt, do you honestly believe that you are just as much in need of God's grace as the one that has hurt you? You see how that self-righteousness wells up. And that's why the gospel is attacking us with grace and truth every single time. This heart of pride was one of the major issues that the religious people had during Jesus' day. And the same is true still today. Speaking of this religious group, Jesus says this in Matthew 23, verse 4. They, scribes and Pharisees, tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their fingers. So some of the hardest Christians that we will be around are those who have enough Jesus in their life to know right from wrong, right? But not enough Jesus in their life to meet people where they are and seek to help them right? Especially when there's hurt. When we are in the process of restoration, the last thing we need is the heaviness of man-made rules and expectations, especially when the person that is giving those man-made rules and expectations even isn't following them themselves, right? What we do need is we need brothers and sisters in Christ who are willing to help in tremendous humility, again, driving us back to the grace and the truth that's found in the work of Jesus. Another component of restoration is restoration takes responsibility, takes responsibility. Uh, remember, again, the context. We're part of a faith family, right? Things come up in the faith family, so what do we do? Uh, we need to take responsibility. He says in verse 2, the first part, he says, bear one another's burden. So this idea of burden refers to things that are too heavy for one person to carry, right? Uh, and, and it's in the active tense, meaning that, that we need to keep on carrying one another's burdens. In other words, burdens are just a way of life, right? Uh, when brothers and sisters walk through the restoration process, the burden can be quite great. And our brothers and sisters, they need what? They need help. And we are taking the responsibility to carry the burdens of those who were sinned against and those who did the sinning, right? It, that's, that's our commitment to the body of Christ. We're going to come alongside and help carry the burdens of both of those individuals. To bear someone's burden means we are willing to, to get under the load with them. We are willing to share the weight of their hurts, their pains, their struggles, and even their addictions. And this is one of the reasons why we are called to take personal responsibility. 
And Paul says in verses 4 and 5 of Galatians 6, he said, but each one uh, tests his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. That, that phrase there, bear his own load, is the idea of a backpack, right? So it's your personal responsibility to carry the backpack that God has given to you in the midst of that restoration. Paul says uh, to live in light of God's evaluation of you, not the evaluation of comparing yourself to everybody else, in other words, God has given you specific responsibilities in the process, specifically of restoration. And as we walk through that process, here's what we need to recognize. When you're walking through the process of restoration, I can never think of a situation where the responsibility is always on just one person. Both parties have a responsibility in the process of restoration. God has allowed that hurt at the very least so that you will grow deeper in dependency on him. So whatever responsibility you have in that restoration process, be willing to take those responsibilities for the glory of the Lord and the benefit of your brother and sister in Christ. And when Paul speaks of boasting, he's not talking about boasting in ourselves, right? He's not even talking about boasting in others. Our boast is ultimately in Christ. Everything we do is because of the glory of God. And everything we can do is because God's work in us. So our boast is in Christ. Our boast is in God's grace, not our works. So we need to focus on the faithfulness of God. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord and desire to help, carrying our own responsibilities in a way that glorifies the Lord and helps our brothers and sisters in Christ. So restoration takes responsibility. Next, restoration fulfills the law of Christ. Fulfills the law of Christ. Second part of verse 2, uh, that's what Paul says, and so fulfill uh, the law of Christ. The law of Christ is the law of love, uh, loving God and loving neighbor. Uh, remember what Paul said already in Galatians 5. He says this in verse 13 and 14, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So instead of doing the law, we are fulfilling the law. How so? Well, Paul quotes here from Leviticus 19.18, which is the second greatest commandment, which makes us think, what is the first greatest commandment? And what is that? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And again, both of the commandments, the first and the second, hinge on what? Hinge on one word. The word is love. What is the scripture teaching us? As we love God, right? So think about the Ten Commandments for just a moment. The first four commandments are based on our love of God, right? The, the remaining six are our, our love for people around us, our love for our neighbor. And what Paul is teaching us is that, that the way that uh, the law of Christ is fulfilled is how? By loving God. As we love God, the fruit of that love will be what? Will be in loving one another. Now think about the beauty and the power of the love that God has given to us. Think about the purity of that love. Again, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You know, when you're walking through that restoration process with somebody that has hurt you, it's the love of Christ that holds all those things together. It's the love of Christ that, uh, that gives us the, the desire and the power to move forward, to take that next step. So as you think about uh, the process of restoration right now in your life, whoever that individual is, do you see the love of Christ controlling that? Do you see the love of Christ uh, being at the forefront of that process of restoration? And then lastly, restoration is possible. Restoration is possible. You know, the Lord can do more than we can imagine, right? 
I think about brothers and sisters in Christ who have been wounded deeply. And yet, because both parties were committed to forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration, you see an amazing picture of the power of the gospel on display. Is there hurt? Absolutely. Is there tears? Absolutely. But man, God does an amazing work. Why? Because he is able. No matter how far you've strayed or who you are or how much you have been wounded or have wounded someone else, even though you have a thousand reasons to justify your bitterness, God's grace is sufficient to heal and restore even the hardest of relationships. Why? Because he is able. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21, talking about spiritual strength within the ministry. It says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see, grace reminds us that the final chapter hasn't been written yet, right? Jesus is still working in my life. He's still working in your life. It's the gospel who can take a slave like Onesimus and make him a brother. And that same God who can do that can heal a broken marriage. He can take a person with addiction and make him free again. And he can take a narcissist, meaning someone that only thinks about himself or herself, and become a tremendous servant of the Lord. God can restore the joy of your salvation. After David confesses his sin, he goes uh, to the Lord and says in Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. God, God can restore your delight in the Lord again. Listen, when we're wandering away from the Lord, guess what? There's no delight there, right? There is absolutely no delight there. But in that restoration process, God is able to restore the delight that we need in him. And as we delight in the Lord, guess what? That delight, that joy will overflow in our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I believe God is able to restore lost time. What happens if you've blown it, Right? What happens if you messed up in a particular relationship? What if there have been days, months, even years of lost opportunity in your marriage or your friendships with one another? Is God able to restore, quote unquote, that lost time? I think about what happens in the book of Joel. In Joel chapter 2, God's people had lost several years of harvest, right? Everything that they were laboring for is gone because of their disobedience to the Lord. And God sent locusts to destroy their crops, but yet God in his grace and his mercy says this in verse 25, he says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. So when you think about your relationships today, have there been some lost days, some lost years due to hurt, bitterness, rebellion, coldness, apathy, hostility, for unforgiveness? Whatever contributed to those lost years or those lost days in your relationships, know that they can be redeemed, they can be restored when both parties surrender and submit to the work of Christ. Listen, your, your greatest days, your greatest years can still be ahead, right? They still could be ahead. And that's what we believe. We believe that God is able to restore uh, lost time. And then lastly, God can restore our hope. Our hope, not in the individual, not in the situation, but ultimately in the Lord. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So again, we're trusting in the Lord so that the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So what are you trusting in today? When you think about relational hurt, relational pain, relational brokenness, what are you truly hoping in? Again, all these things are meant to drive us into greater dependency on the Lord. 
So God can restore your hope. Again, not particularly in that individual, but ultimately in the Lord. When you think about restoration today, uh, where are you at in that process? You know, has there, again, been forgiveness? Has there been uh, an understanding and agreement uh, to remove the obstacles in the relationship? In other words, the, there's a desire for reconciliation, and now you're in that place of, of restoration. Listen, it, it can be a lifelong process, right? I mean, you think about uh, the trust that gets broken, the intimacy that gets broken, all those things that get broken. Guess what? God can restore those things, but it may take a lifelong process, right? And so the, the question is, are you going to commit to the process of restoration? Are you going to address the sin? Are you going to trust in the work of the Spirit? Are you going to do so in humility? Are you going to take responsibility for your part in that situation? Not just the two parties that are involved, but we as a church, we're around hurt all the time. And we can't just sit back and watch, right? As the Lord leads us, we need to engage in helping and taking responsibility in that. Why? Because it fulfills the law of Christ and we trust that restoration is possible. So as we uh, sing to the Lord, as we sing a word of praise, the fact that he is worthy.